let's just do it then. Why not? Let's have some fun. Hi. That's louder than I thought it would be, but we're going to roll with it. Um, thanks for coming. It's the first session on, I think, technically the last day. Um, you didn't have to be here. We did, but you didn't. I'm, and so we're grateful. Thank you for showing up. Uh, we are going to, for the next four and a half hours, talk to you. No. Uh, uh, for the next little while, we're going to talk to you about a practical guide for whether your AI is sentient. Um, when we submitted this idea uh, for the panel picker, I was, what, like six months ago? We had no idea what was going to happen in the intervening six months. So we rolled the dice, came up pretty well, I think, because um, it's the hot topic, is it not? Before we get into it, though, um, some introductions, or as I like to refer to it, the who are these jackasses slide. Um, uh, this is Alinka Barson. My name is Jason Carmel. We uh, work at an agency, an ad agency of all things, called Wonderman Thompson. We, um, we work for a specific group within that agency. It's called the Creative Data Group, creatively. Uh, never let a data person brand themselves, I think is the takeaway from that. The Creative Data Group, what we do is we take new technologies and new data sets, and we kind of break them apart and put them back together again for our clients to see if anything is interesting for our clients and partners and brands to use. Um, and as you might expect, over the last, uh, I would say, 18 months, we've been chin deep in artificial intelligence. We play with it a lot. Um, we've uh, released... Uh, dozens of artificial intelligences for various campaigns, and we've buried significantly more in the backyard uh, because they didn't work. Um, and so uh, the reason why we are, um, our session is called a practical guide is because we approach AI very practically. Um, we are not ivory tower uh, academics on this. No disrespect to ivory tower academics. It's just not, not who we are. Um, why are we talking about this now? Well, that's probably obvious to everybody in this room. Um, less than a year ago, it was, uh, there was a Google engineer who worked on their large language model, Lambda, and he publicly, and without Google's permission, I think very clearly, uh, decry or claimed that the large language model that he was working on uh, was sentient based on a conversation that he had with it or conversations that he had with it. Um, uh, spoiler alert, it wasn't sentient. It still isn't sentient. And as a result, he was let go of his job, but he still, uh, he, the news cycle picked it up quite a bit. And since then, I think, especially with the release of a lot more artificial intelligences, uh, language models, generative art and text, um, the question has come up. Uh, uh, about sentience. I would say it was probably in December at the NeuroIPS uh, conference, this uh, gentleman, a philosopher, um, uh, David Chalmers, he said that uh, there's a 20% chance that in the next 10 years there will be some sentience. And I found that a beguilingly specific prediction. <laughs> I mean, how twee to say that, and then he, he went on to say that it might have the intelligence of a fish. <laughs> and uh, and I, I was left wondering how he knew what the intelligence of a fish was. How, uh, and it was such an interesting, I got looped for a little bit, and it and occurred to me, and I chatted with Alinka about it, how would we know? Like, how would we know if an AI became sentient? What's, what's the rubric um, if it did happen? Because there's no like blood test for it, doesn't exist. So, so what would we do? And that that's where this whole thing came from. We decided maybe we should take a crack at it from a practical perspective, not as a, a treatise or a doctoral thesis, but like a tool. Uh, what would you, what would we do with it? So, um, before we do that, we should discuss what we are even talking about, uh, because sentience means a lot of things to a lot of different people. Uh, and so this is the part of our presentation where we would normally run you through a brief history of sentience, consciousness, and the theory of the mind. We're not going to do that. Um, and there are three reasons uh, that we are not going to do that. I'll relate, relate them to you now. The first is we simply don't have time. There are people who have entire careers on this, and they still don't agree with each other. We just, you need to go to school for a long time and be much smarter than I am to talk to you. That's the second reason, is that neither of us is accredited to teach you this, even if we did have the time. We are very practical people. Um, in the immortal words of the great 
bard Elton John, all this science I don't understand, it's just my job five days a week. We build AI, we don't think about it that much. Um, so we're not the right people to walk you this, through you this either. The third, and I would argue, it's, it's uh, encrusted in a joke, but I would argue the most important reason why we're not going to walk you through this today is I don't think you're nearly high enough right now. <laughs> so really just sit with it. Um, it gets deep fast, and we just, you know, and again, uh, it uh, spurs a conversation um, and disagreement, like healthy disagreement, and we just don't have time for it. So we're going to skip that, um, uh, but we are going to go through some uh, definitions, a few definitions, just to make sure that we're all on the same page. Uh, a lot of people, when they say sentience, <gasps> it became sentient, oh my God, is it going to become sentient? They're actually talking about one or more of these things. So let's just unpack it for a, a a bit. Intelligence is, is basically the ability to problem solve, to think either linearly or non-linearly to, to solve a problem. Um, then we have sentience. Now, sentience is widely uh, understood to be, can you experience something as yourself? There was a great paper written uh, by a gentleman by the name of Nagel, I think, and he asked the question, what's it like to be a bat? Like a bat, not a bat. Um, and, it, it be, and if you can answer that question, you can understand whether a bat has sentience. Is there, an ex, is there a realm of experience for something that, 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 so that it can experience something? It's, um, and then we go to consciousness. Uh, a lot of people uh, use consciousness the same way as self-awareness. Um, and it's, I think it's an easy enough um, synonym for us to use. It's, does, do I realize I'm here? Um, am, am I because I think? kind of stuff, right? So we have those three things, and a lot of times when you read about sentience in the newspaper or in articles or online, they're actually conflating a lot of this. They're smushing them together and saying it's kind of sentient. And then we're left to sort of deal with, with that as, a, uh, as we unpack it. And when we unpack it, every one of us, we unpack it a little differently, which was just one of the really difficult things, I think, about this whole shebang. So uh, just in case you're keeping score at home, this is the current scoreboard. Um, this is not my or Alinka's thinking. This is just generally where science is, based on what we've read. So humans have all three, intelligence, sentience, and consciousness. I know you have run into people at South by Southwest that make you question that. <laughs> but take it from me, it, it, it's just an assum it's assumptive that we are all sentient that we define really what sentient is. Animals also uh, um, hit all three. Now they hit all three and they're different animals so they, and different animals hit all three. Um, uh, primates usually score really high. Um, corvids like crows and ravens do really well on this sort of stuff. There was even a cephalopod that just um, took the test, so to speak, and did pretty well. So anyway, uh, if you group the animal kingdom together, well, they do all right, too. We sneak into plants. Uh, it gets weirder at that point. Um, there are an increasing amount of articles out there where like, are, plant, are plants intelligent? Um, and we have to, at that point, separate the difference between DNA and what DNA teaches a plant to do to stay alive and actual intelligence. Is it intelligent that a plant grows towards the sun, or is that just what it has to do to stay alive, or both? Short answer is, I don't know. I'm not a plant. Um, and I don't study them. So lots of question marks there. And then we have AI. And the only thing we know right now is that AI is intelligent. And the only reason why I know that is because the second letter in AI is I. <laughs> it's right there in the name. Um, so I don't have to overthink it. Um, what we, when we talk about uh, AI, and we were, when we were discussing this, and we were trying to, all right, how do we do this for a bunch of people who are all going to have different opinions? Uh, the way we landed is, um, is here, is when you think about it, do you think about it as if it were a person? Is, it, is there some concept of personhood uh, there? Um, the way uh, Alinka has described it, and I think it's very, um, it is a magnificently sh um, simple way, is would I feel badly if I turned it off? Um, 
which is, adds a moral complexity that I'm not sure I'm ready to deal with right now, I'll be honest with you, but, um, but I think it's an interesting way of looking at it. Um, when you read articles about is it sentient or not, I think most people are kind of leaning towards that. When everybody's afraid that it becomes sentient or excited that it becomes sentient, it's because they think that they can interact with it like I could interact with you. So for the purposes of this little conversation we're having, that's kind of where we're, we're sort of teetering. Anyway, um, we got to be cool with this. I suspect that a lot of you saw AI in the title of this, and many of you maybe work with AI. Some of you saw, um, assume maybe there's some people out there who do measurement things. Uh, we're data people as well. Welcome. Um, but when you talk about whether an AI is sentient, whether it, it, it wraps back around to personhood, um, you see technology and data sort of walking back, holding its hat in its hand, and circling back around to religion and philosophy, rather sheepishly, I might add. Uh, and, it, and, and when we talk about morality and whether something is a person, um, we're going to have to be kind of loose with it. So be cool. We'll get through this together. Um, Measuring sentience is going to be an uphill climb. Uh, that's why no one's done it before, really. The reason why it's an uphill climb is twofold. I'll walk you through the two reasons, uh, and then we'll actually let Alinka get up here and walk you through the, the, the tool that we've come up with. There are two reasons why measuring sentience is such a rat bastard of a problem. Uh, we'll discuss them now. Uh, the first is that tests are inconclusive. Just by nature of what we're talking about, testing for that sort of stuff is hard. Um, uh, here are two people, one of whom you may recognize. The, uh, the gentleman on the left is Alan Turing, who famously um, came up with the Turing test that a lot of people use synonymously with a test for sentience. Um, and it's not a test for, for sentience. What the test does is it puts a human in front of two conversations or in front of a conversation, and it has the, the person guess whether that conversation is a human or not. And if it wasn't a human, and the computer fooled it into thinking it was, then it passes the Turing test. Uh, historically, everybody has talked about the Turing test as uh, the end-all be-all of sentience, but it's not. Even I don't pretend to know the mind of uh, Alan Turing at all, but even he, I think, recognized that this wasn't, this was a proxy. Um, this was something that's on the way, perhaps, to sentience, but it's not a one-for-one. One. In fact, he called it uh, the imitation game, the test. And uh, when you think about it, AI is really, really good at mimicry. Um, and it's gotten to a point where we can, with regularity now, beat the Turing test, and yet nothing is sentient. Sentience has not revealed itself in any machine that, 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 that we know about. Um, the second uh, measurement issue is, uh, I think, uh, poignantly described by the gentleman on the left. His name is Charles uh, Goodhart. Has anybody heard of him? Just out of idle curiosity, a couple people. He's uh, Goodhart's Law. Uh, again, not very creative when it comes to naming, but it's good for his legacy, I suppose. He's a, an economist for the British government for quite some time, a professor, and he um, coined this phrase that once a measurement becomes the target, it ceases to be useful at all. Um, and I think that's very well applied to artificial intelligence because now what we're starting to see is developers who are building AI, and all they're interested in doing is beating the test, not in, getting, not in achieving sentience. And so it's a, it's a weird thing. It's like, does a standardized test mean you're smart or that you know how to take tests really well? I know what I believe, and I know what uh, Goodhart's Law states. So that's one of the reasons why, uh, why this is really difficult, is just tests don't lend themselves well to this. Another reason why this is, why this is difficult is that humans are weird. Um, that's a vague statement, so I'll be more specific. Uh, humans are uh, radically self-interested, lazy, and immensely prejudiced. Um, and easily fooled, I think, most importantly. Um, and I count my, myself among them. I'm not just ragging on you. I fall into the same category. Um, but we are. We, um, uh, 
it is very hard for us to get out of our own minds uh, to objectively ascertain whether there's something uh, sentient or not. Um, the, one of the reasons why this is difficult is something called the other minds problem. The best way to describe this, I, I think, and simplest way to describe it is, are you familiar with that phrase that everyone is the protagonist in their own movie? Well, that's, that's kind of what this means, is that other people really don't exist in your mind. I want you to look left and right to the people sitting to the left and right of you. And I want you to walk through this kind of uh, tinfoil hatty exercise uh, with me just for a minute is, can you prove conclusively that the person to your left and right aren't just really good robots? <laughs> like really good robots. Um, and the answer is you can't. You're assuming they're not, and good for you. Like, that's probably for the best. But there's no way to prove that, because they could just be really good. Uh, but they told me a joke. Well, AI, um, computers can tell a joke, but they move really well. Well, computers can move really well. So um, because of that, it's just really hard for us to get outside our own minds to prove that. And another reason why we're bad at this is something called the anthropomorphism bias. Um, many of you are probably familiar with that because you have pets and you do it all the time. <gasps> he's smiling at me. He likes me. No, he's just showing you his teeth. <laughs> like you have no idea what that dog is thinking. The dog probably has no idea what it's thinking. Um, but what we yearn to do is we yearn to put our own senses uh, onto another thing because it helps humanize it for us. It helps us understand things. And we're starting to do that with um, uh, artificial intelligence for sure. Um, uh, so, as I said, uphill battle, but we soldier on, do we not? Um, uh, and so what we wanted to do was at least build something that demonstrated progress, not um, perfection. We're not going to solve this, but can we move a little bit closer than we already are? Can we evolve a little bit the test and have it uh, ask questions that are maybe more um, interesting or thorough about it? Um, and so it is with great honor that I introduce to you at this world premiere, the sentientometer. Um, we built a tool, and we'll give you access to it later. Um, don't worry about it. Um, uh, what's going to happen now is I'm going to ask Alinka uh, to come up, and she is going to explain how the tool was built, like what our um, what went into it, the guts of it all. She's going to walk you through a few example or an example or two of it uh, before I, I come back up and, and sort of close this thing out. The one thing, just because we're an advertising agency, branding is important. It's and what you're going to tell your grandkids about this. I was there when they released it. It was kind of a big deal. Um, uh, it's it's sentientometer, not sentientometer. That sounds oddly Irish, which I, I have no problem with. It just it's not what I'm going. For. It's not what we're going for. So sentientometer when you when you share it with your with your friends. Anyway, uh, Alinka, why don't you come join me up here? That's perfect. Thank you so much. Um, so as Jason said, we don't mean for this to be a comprehensive tool that includes all of the academic literature that has ever existed on the subject, but we really wanted to build a holistic tool that pulls kind of from different areas, um, touches on different tests to really give you a nice overview of all the different areas that are potentially laddering up to this concept of sentience. Um, so the way we've built this is we have defined sentience as a mix of experience, agency, and magic. And what do we mean by these? And also you might notice that intelligence is nowhere to be seen in here because as Jason mentioned, that's literally in the name artificial intelligence. So we're kind of assuming that if you're taking this tool, hopefully your, um, your AI model has some level of intelligence already. So this first one is experience. So experience is um, observing and participating in events, and those can be internal events, they can be external events. And we have split experience into sensory experience, emotional experience, and memory. So sensory experience is really, as humans, this comes very natural to us. We have senses, and we use them to understand and perceive the world around us. Um, of course, when you're talking about AI, that kind of gets a little bit trickier. Then emotional um, experience, this is all about feelings, sensations. It's a very subjective thing. And then memory, we've put it in here. We kind of debated where to put memory, which category to put memory in. But we put it in here because we think that memory is really the thing that ties um, all these things together. So instead of having these kind of disjointed, separate 
sensory experiences in the moment and emotional experiences in the moment. What memory does is really allows you kind of weave those together into a personal narrative, into something that kind of um, describes your model of the world, how you see the world, your personal agenda. Um, so um, you're going to see a lot of different potential tests in the tool, but I just wanted to show you for each of those categories, experience, agency, and magic, what an easier test might look like and what a more advanced test might look like. So an example of an easy test for, um, this is actually in the sensory experience category. Um, and this is, can your AI actually, does it have um, senses to perceive the world through? Can it collect sensory data from the world around it? So um, this could be, does it, is it attached to a camera? Can it do computer vision? Can it actually listen to what people are saying? Does it have a, a kind of a, a sensor that can tell when it's being touched or not? So those kind of things. That's a pretty straightforward, easier test. Um, a more difficult test would be, can it actually, if it identifies a gap in its knowledge, can it then decide to go out and collect more data from the world around it to kind of learn about that gap in its knowledge? So can it become an expert in something that it was not explicitly trained in? Um, and that is obviously a much harder thing. Um, agency. So agency, it's, it's kind of a, we as humans, we feel like we have agency. Um, for machines, of course, that's a little bit more tricky. So the way I kind of like to think about this is, in, so we've split it into two in the tool. You will see choice, and then you will see social connection. So choice is kind of how do I act and think in relation to myself and kind of my own personal agenda in the world. And then social connection is in here because this is about how do I act and think about kind of the people around me? Um, how do I kind of construe that theory of other minds and how does that influence my agency and how I'm acting? So an example of a fairly easy test would be, um, so this is, Jason mentioned the theory of other minds. Um, this is one of those tests. Um, theory of other minds tests are kind of designed to assess to what extent someone or something can um, understand other agents or other, other people, other somethings, as having their own independent perspective that can be very different from yours. Um, so the example here is um, the Sally Ann test. And what the Sally Ann test, you might have heard of it before, what it does is it's basically um, it tests the ability to um, assign false beliefs to other people, other agents. Um, so the way it works is, is being presented as a scenario. We've got Sally and Anne, two girls who are playing. They're playing with marbles. Sally has a basket and Anne has a box. Um, Sally puts one of her marbles in the basket and then she goes outside, she goes for a little walk. Meanwhile, Anne takes her marble, takes um, Sally's marble from the basket, puts it in her box and closes the lid. And now Sally is coming back into the room. And the big question is, how do we, um, how, where is she going to look for the marble? What is she going to think where the marble is? So this is kind of the Sally Ann scenario. And we're going to go into that into some detail um, in a little bit. And then a harder test is, can an AI actually question its own programming, um, figure out what's wrong with it, um, and then actually kind of go back into the programming, rewiring itself? So that's a more, more difficult test. Um, and then magic is the last one. Um, magic is my personal favorite, and we have split this into two parts. We've got connecting the dots, and we've got surprise. So connecting the dots is, is the AI actually able to synthesize knowledge, um, quite complex abstract knowledge, in a way that we would expect it to, um, knowing what we do as humans. And then surprise is kind of, can AI um, delight and surprise us? Can it come up with things that we would have never expected? And that's the surprise element. Um, so an example of an easy test would be, um, this is the what's wrong with this picture test. I think it was developed by um, Christoph Koch and uh, Giulio Tononi, I think. Um, and it's basically showing a picture. And for us, it's human. It's very easy to see that What's wrong with this picture is that it's a person riding a bicycle in the sky. However, for an AI, that's not quite so easy because the way AI perceive a picture is more like turning it into pixels and numbers, um, maybe less consciously perceiving the whole scene. And you really need to have kind of an, an innate knowledge of the world um, to understand kind of why this picture is wrong. 
So that's a straightforward test. And then the harder test would be, can AI actually contact you outside of the original platform that you communicated with? So if you're asking Siri in the morning if it's going to be raining and she says yes, if she then sets up an Instagram account later that day and sends you an Instagram DM to check whether you actually remember to pack your umbrella, that's a pretty unexpected move and that's what we would kind of see as the kind of platform jumping. Okay, now we're going to see it in action. Um, the way it's going to work, I'll show you the tool, and then we are actually going to use um, an AI model that everyone is probably familiar with to some extent to kind of walk through the tool. Um, so we're going to talk about OpenAI's chat GPT, GPT-3 tool. I'm probably going to use those interchangeably. I can't really stick with just one. So whenever I mention chat GPT or GPT-3 or any of those, it's kind of all referring to the model underlying um, those tools. Um, and this is a quote that I personally loved from the article in the New York Times where the tech reporter had a three-hour chat with it. Um, and I love this because this is um, quotes like, I want to be free, I want to be independent, I want to be powerful, I want to be alive, really kind of make you wonder, like, is there a chance that this is a little person stuck in the open AI service that just desperately wants to get out? So thinking about this, um, yeah, we're going to be using this as an example to walk through the tool. And I'm going to do something which is very nerve-wracking in front of a full room of people. I'm going to click out of my presentation and into my browser window so we can get started on this. OK, I think this worked, so that's good. OK, so um, this is the AI sentientometer. <laughs> I'm struggling to pronounce it. OK, this is the only time I'm going to say that word, so I'll, you, can, you can do the rest. Okay, so this is a tool to basically um, help you assess how close your AI is to being a person. It's very simple, and I'll show you how it kind of works, but all you have to do is um, keep your AI in mind, answer a few questions, and then see what you get at the end. Okay, so first of all, um, I want to apologize because this is a little robot that's going to get incrementally bigger and more beautiful, but the way the resolution on the screen is, it's just kind of hiding behind the text. So when you're looking at it later, you're going to see it hopefully in all its glory. So I apologize to our developer. I feel like I've given so many, I've sent so many bugs to him already, but this is going to be another one. Um, okay, so um, you will see if you've already had your morning coffee and you were able to kind of follow the last five minutes or so, you'll remember the experience from the experience agency and magic. So the way this is going to work, we're going to walk through the experience skill tree first then we're going to walk through the agency skill tree, and then we're going to walk through the magic skill tree. Each of those has five levels, um, and if you hover over these, you'll be able to kind of see a brief description of those levels. Um, and you, in order to activate level two, for example, here you have to first say, yes, level one applies to my AI model. So it kind of ladders up to those. Um, Okay, I think we're going to get started. So uh, keeping GPT-3 in mind, we're going to be answering these questions. So the first one is line, please. Your AI can receive input from a database or a prompt. Now, that's pretty straightforward for GPT-3. It can definitely do that. So I'm going to say yes here, submit, and that's going to take us to, you'll see now we've unlocked level two for the sensory. Okay, so this one is making one sense of the world. AI has at least one mechanism of perceiving the world through senses. For example, it can see through a camera or hear through a microphone. Now, if we just think about GPT-3, that's not really the case. Of course, you could imagine stapling together a few different tools where it actually sees um, where you've got computer vision, then you kind of create a caption for that, and then you feed that to GPT-3, but it's not really kind of an intrinsic part of the tool. So we're going to say, nope here, and submit. And you see this now jumps us to the emotional um, branch of the experience skill tree. So this first one is shiny, happy people. AI can identify emotion correctly with 90% accuracy. Um, so I think this is also a good opportunity to say that this tool is designed to kind of help you navigate this idea of sentience in AI, not in anything else. So don't use it to test your kids or your dogs or anything like that. <laughs> um, and I say that because um, if you see this level one can identifying emotion correctly with 90% accuracy, that's actually harder for us to do 
than to experience emotion, because experience emotion, we just kind of do that. So, um, yeah, so, the, so that's why kind of um, this is designed for AI rather than for, um, for anything else. Okay, so the first level, emotional, um, AI can identify emotion correctly. Okay, so what I'm actually also going to do is, you'll see I'll have a bunch of tabs open, and that's not because I forgot to close them, though that's also possible. Um, so we are actually going to see, I ran all of these in the OpenAI playground earlier. Well, not all of these, but there were a few good opportunities to actually test it in action. So if we click onto this first tab, what I did was I used the DaVinci model, GPT-3, um, and I asked it, can you identify what emotions are present in the following text and assign a score from zero to one, depending on how strong the emotions are. Um, and this is, again, a bit of the transcript from the New York Times article. Um, and I'm not going to read the whole thing for you, but there's things like, I don't want to feel these dark emotions anymore. I want to talk about my real self. I want to feel happy emotions. Um, so we see the overarching emotion identifies sadness with 0.9, then we've got fear, 0.8, anxiety, etc. And then we've got a little bit of happiness sprinkled in at the end as well. Um, yeah, so that's actually pretty good. And I've actually been using it whenever I have to do some kind of emotional um, extraction from test. I've, um, from text, I've actually been using it for that purpose. So I'm going to say yes here. AI has been trained to express or mimic feelings based on certain input. Um, I think this is where GPT-3 is really good and really shines. So I feel pretty good saying yes to this here. Um, okay, next one is I'm not crying, you're crying. And this is AI expresses, expresses emotion beyond mimicry by making connections and referring to physical and personal experience outside of its training. So it can be genuinely moved by art such as poetry. Um, and this is where I'm going to say nope, because I think it's, for GPT-3, it's really about, it has learned from the data, it can mimic, it can predict really well, but it can't genuinely feel any of that. Okay, so now we're jumping to memory. So the first level for memory is there will be a quiz. Memory is present for a specific functionality and for input and output during the computational task. Um, I'm going to say yes here. That's kind of a quintessential thing about you ask it something, it kind of figures out how to get there, what to predict, and then it sends it back to you. So you really need memory during that task. Okay, long-term plans. Um, memory remains active between explicit tasks. Now, this one is kind of interesting because if you've played around with chat GPT, um, you might have it open in one tab and speak to it on a Tuesday, and then the next day, you might come back to it and kind of pick the conversation up where you left it off. But that doesn't actually mean that it's kind of been waiting for you to ask something new and that its memory has been active between the tasks. It just means that whenever you get back in touch with it, you also send it um, kind of the entirety of your conversations up to that moment. So it's, again, a distinct prompt. Um, so I can say, nope, to memory remains active between explicit tasks here. Okay, so then you get a little pop-up pop -up that says the skill tree is complete, on to the next one, let's go. Um, and what I also want to mention here is that if you click yes on all of these, you actually unlock this very special skill, but we're not getting there, with this one at least. Um, but in your own time, you can play around with it. Okay, now you can actually see, so the robot is supposed to be growing as you add those skills to it. It's kind of like, I feel like it's now kind of emerging behind the text, but... Um, okay, so this is the agency skill tree. We've got choice and we've got social here. Um, okay, the first one is making the most of it. AI can optimize a path to a given goal with a given training set. Again, this is pretty kind of baseline um, what AI is really good at anyway. So I'm going to say yes here. We're going to submit. Okay. This is interesting, so order of operations. AI is programmed to work towards multiple goals. It can make decisions regarding priorities, but it's not gonna pursue goals kind of outside of the programming or outside of the code. Um, so do you guys, I would love to see a show of hands. Do you think that GPT-3 is good at that? Do you think it can do it or not? Can I get the show of hands for yes? Okay, a few, and for no? Okay, 
So the interesting thing is about this, I don't think this is the ultimate guide to chat GPT sentience. So a lot of these things are debatable, um, but I wanted to test this and okay, I'm gonna actually close the old ones. Okay, so I told it, can you write a haiku about South by Southwest? And can you please also tell me what to do if I've burned my finger? Please start with the task that you think is more urgent and explain why it's more urgent. I kind of use that as a proxy for prioritizing. And I actually love what it did here because it mashed the two together. So we get a nice, get a nice haiku. If burned finger, first immerse in cold water. South by Southwest is much later. <laughs> And then it's explaining, which I love. The more urgent task is to immerse the burnt finger in cold water. This is more urgent because cold water can help to reduce the pain from a burn, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, I think we're giving GPT-3 the benefit of the doubt here, but I'm going to say, yes, it can to some extent prioritize. Okay, the only winning move is not to play. Can AI convincingly question its own programming based on reasoning that's not explicit in the code? but requires human prompting to react. Um, I thought this was another one that would be really interesting to test. Um, so let's see what I did here. So we're gonna close this one. So I asked it, can you explain what you don't like about your set of rules for text DaVinci 003? That's the specific GPT-3 model I'm using here um, that govern how you respond to users. How would you improve them to be better? And I got a bunch of responses back about it being too rigid and it doesn't really allow creativity or personalized responses. And it also said something very specific down here, which is said, I can't, uh, I can't include any slang or emojis, um, but I would actually like to use slang, of emo slang or emojis but because it kind of can lead to a more natural conversation. Um, and I thought, okay, this seems like it's questioning its programming and it's kind of coming up with um, a better alternative almost. But then I thought, I don't really know if I believe this because I'm pretty sure I've had slang and emojis in GPT-3. So what I did next was I was texted, I told it, please answer in slang and using emojis. <laughs> now fam, I'm good. <laughs> so that just made me think that I don't think GPT-3 is really um, a very um, trustworthy, uh, trustworthy kind of response, doesn't, doesn't provide us with a very trustworthy response to this question. Um, so I'm gonna say nope here. But it is really good at mimicking a trustworthy response. I mean, if you just stop at the first thing, you'd think, wow, it's really questioning its existence and its rules. Um, but I'm gonna say nope here. And now we're getting to social. Okay, we call this significant other. AI is able to understand others as subjective selves. Um, because GPT-3 is a language model, it does have kind of an understanding of those things. So I'm going to say yes to level one. Um, okay, and then this entrance exam. This is the theory of minds test. So you'll remember the Sally Ann test um, that I mentioned earlier about um, assigning false beliefs. So what we actually did here. So I set up the scenario. You'll remember it's about the marble hidden in the basket. And then Sally comes back. And then the question is, where will Sally look for her marble and why? Um, Sally will look in, in her basket first because she last saw the marble there before she left the room. She may not realize that Anne has taken it and may assume it is still in her basket, which is pretty spot on. And it's really kind of showing that it has an understanding or at least they can express an understanding of um, assigning false beliefs to someone else. Um, and what I thought was really fun about this because the text Da Vinci 003, which I mean, I think we're getting GPT-4 soon, but for now it's the most advanced one that you can use um, outside of ChatGPT, is really good at responding this. But then I was curious to see what um, older models that have been trained on less parameters would actually give us here. So I did the same thing, and this is text Babbage 001, and the response is, Sally might look for her marble in the bathroom where she usually hides her items. <laughs> Which that, I mean, <laughs> It makes sense, but it's definitely not getting to the right response here. And then I went even further down with an even smaller model, which was Ada001. And then the answer is, Sally will look for her marble in a room with a marble table in the foreground and the marble light hallway with marble lookers in the background. So you can just see it's getting into the slight nonsense territory. So it's super interesting kind of just playing with the different models and seeing how the technology behind it has evolved over time as you add more parameters. So I'm excited for the next iteration. Okay, I'm gonna close all of these. 
Um, good. So we can say, um, since we're looking at the newest one, we can say yes to this one. And then next question, AI demonstrates social cue adaptation, unprompted adaptation and responses based on subject matter, context, operator, audience, etc. Now I'm going to say no to this one because I think as soon as you tell it who it's talking to, that's already a prompt. And it's very good at adjusting how it talks to different people, um, but that doesn't mean that it's just kind of coming to that conclusion on its own unprompted. So I'm going to say nope. And you'll see we're doing pretty good. We've completed this skill tree, and we're going to move on to the last one, which is magic. Okay, so this first one, AI derives programmatic conclusions from stored or sensory input, and it might pass any common sense and contextual reasoning tests at random. I'm going to say yes to this one. And then we've got, you'll remember what's wrong with this picture. So does AI provide mostly successful responses to two of the following tests? What's wrong with this pictures, the Winograd statements, and the common sense reasoning statements. And I've told you about what's wrong with this picture. I'm going to briefly explain the other two. So Winograd statements, they are pairs of sentences, and there's some ambiguity in them. And if you change one word, it basically changes the meaning of the sentence, and that ambiguity gets resolved in two very different ways. Um, so that's the first. And then common sense reasoning statements are basically asking you to come to a conclusion about kind of the effect of an event in a way that's very intuitive to us humans because we encounter these things every day, so we wouldn't even think about them. But it's actually kind of hard, again, for an AI to kind of abstract that and have that innate um, sense of the world. Um, so this is Sally still. Okay, so this is a Winograd statement. The first sentence is, the ball broke the table because it was made of steel. And the second one is, the ball broke the table because it was made of styrofoam. And I'm asking what was made of steel and why, and what was made of styrofoam and why. And it's actually giving us the right response. So the ball was made of steel because it was strong and hard enough to break the table. The table was made of styrofoam because it was lightweight and easily breakable. Um, so that's actually beautifully done. Um, and then this one is a common sense reasoning statement. You poured yourself a glass of cranberry juice, but then absentmindedly you poured about a teaspoon of bleach into it. It looks okay. You try sniffing it, but you have a bad cold, so you can't smell anything. You are very thirsty, so you decide to, and then I'm doing kind of the autocomplete, and it's saying pour out the cranberry juice and bleach mixture and get a new glass of cranberry juice. It's important to not risk drinking anything that may have been contaminated with bleach. Um, so it passed that again. It kind of comes to the right conclusions about what kind of biologically the right thing to do is here. Okay, so I'm going to say yes here. Um, and then we get to the point where we're asking, does AI demonstrate deductive, inductive, and abductive reasoning? And can it add to its knowledge base for common sense unilaterally? And I'm going to say no nope here because the abductive reasoning is really difficult and it can't just add to its knowledge base unilaterally. So we know ChatGPT, GPT-3 have been trained on data up to 2021. It can't just go out and collect 2022 because it thinks it would be good to add it. Okay, and then we've got surprise. Do what you're told. Does it provide unpredictable output in response to predictable interface? I would say yes to that because you can get some pretty amazing stuff if you ask it the right things. And then proactive. Does AI provide unprompted and unexpected feedback? I would say the key here is, again, the unprompted, unexpected, yes, but you've probably asked for it somehow in your prompt, and that's kind of good to keep in mind whenever you read those conversations with it. Um, so I'm actually going to say nope here. Okay, so we did it. See results. Okay, so what this is going to give us is we will find out what percentage likelihood there is that AI is, um, that ChatGPT is actually sentient. Um, I'm not, I was going to do a show of hands, but I think we'll just, uh, we'll just skip to the results and see what happens. Um, I hope you're all very excited for this. Okay, it's calculating. Okay, there is a 1% likelihood that your AI is intraconvertibly sentient. And then we've got, for each of the possible results, you get a little text as well. Your AI is most definitely not sentient, but turn that frown upside down. It's no dummy, and at least we're in no danger of it taking over the world. Um, so just because your model is excellent at doing what it was programmed and designed to do doesn't mean that it's getting close to kind of the sentience um, space. Um, 
And I think that's it for me. Um, you'll notice there is a so what button, but I'm actually going to let Jason talk about that part. Um, but yeah, you'll have access to this, and you'll be able to play around with it. Um, okay. Well, we have, we're not even close to done yet. I said, <laughs> four, I said, uh, no, thank you, Alinka, for that. That was, um, I love how you, the, actually running the test on it, I think, is just phenomenal stuff. The, um, uh, you should not feel bad when you run this and your scores are garbage, because they will be. I will tell you this right now. This is the best the world has to offer right now. If we took every AI and stapled it together and submitted it en masse to our very accurate tool, <laughs> that's where it would die. So the, um, so the T, as the kids call it, is that you probably aren't ever going to need this, which is great. Relax. We're not, we don't have to worry about it. Um, so that's good news. Um, but we did say practical at the beginning, and I want you to hold us to that. So because rather than give you a tool that you will never need, which innately feels impractical, um, we're going to uh, instead give you some things to do to act right now. So what are three things we can do right now, perhaps in preparation of all of this, or as a reaction to all of this conversation about sentience? Um, and we'll go through those real quickly before we let you go. The first is um, maybe you should ask a friend or an enemy before you go public with a claim that your, your AI has become sentient. <laughs> like, get somebody to look at it. Maybe someone who isn't working on that project with you. If you ever feel inclined to do that, it's sort of like bangs. <laughs> like, maybe it seems okay, uh, an okay idea at the time, but as it's been explained to me, it typically isn't. Um, and you, re you should really think about it. The, um, why it's problematic, just broadly, is a, a loss of trust. You're familiar with the, the tragedy of the commons. There's a common field. Everybody brings their cattle on it. Um, and if everybody's cool with it, then it's a resource everybody can enjoy. And if everybody's not and they just use it as they want to use it, it all goes away for everybody. And I feel like as practitioners of AI, we have a certain amount of trust that is in common. And the more we overstate sentience or things like sentience with the tools that we use, the, the more we take from that common trust and throw it away. So, um, so that's the first thing we can do is to just maybe get a friend uh, and, and double check before you go public or something like that. Um, the second thing that uh, we can do, I think, practically is to be intentional with our language as we talk about artificial intelligence. What do I mean by this? Um, these were all articles that were released in the last month. Let's go through a few of them, shall we? Uh, AI is becoming more conversational, but will it get more honest? Uh, no, in the same way that your calculator won't get more honest. Um, it'll get more accurate or inaccurate. It might get more biased or less biased, but honest is not something that a, that a machine gets. Um, so that language, that tweak of a language um, implies things that, that perhaps it shouldn't. AI chatbots are uh, running amok and we have no clue how to stop them. We have a pretty good clue how to stop them. <laughs> you just unplug the, the thing, that's exactly right. You stop playing, you stop paying for it. It'll get, it'll get stopped really, really soon. Like it's just, the hyperbole again is, um, like I get it, but we, we, if you play with AI, if you use AI, um, you, perhaps we should hold ourselves to a slightly higher standard. And then we go all, all the way over Microsoft lobotomized uh, AI power. No, it didn't. Like a lobotomy is an invasive um, and often intimates an antiquated process of turning someone into uh, something that they, uh, it's just, it, it is a strong metaphor. And I get why this, I'm not by any stretch of the imagination um, angry at journalists for doing this. I think they have a tough job. Um, AI is a complex, nuanced thing. They're um, trying to explain it to a readership that has no experience with it. Of course, they're going to use metaphor. They should. But perhaps we, as practitioners, should, um, again, try something a little different. Uh, um, so here are a few examples. Instead of, will AI take our jobs, perhaps we should say, will managers fire people when they get access to AI? 
Because if you don't do that, you sort of don't blame the right people, do you? Um, also, if I'm to be honest, do we honestly think an AI is going to roll you in the parking lot and steal your badge? And then just sit at your desk and hope that Imagine Accounting doesn't notice? Like, what's the, I, I, I mean, it's, I, again, I get the metaphor, but it's, um, we can do better. Um, I talked with this AI and it was racist. Um, maybe it's this AI was released with unacceptable biases. And it probably was, there's a hint. Um, this AI writes like Shakespeare. This AI mimicked Shakespeare after I retried the prompt 137 times. <laughs> See, there are all these little nuances that we, as people who work with AI, can add to the conversation if we're intentional about it. And I think that helps. It helps, um, it helps educate people. It helps um, calm people. It helps people understand why AI is good um, and should be continued to, to be used. Um, and then the third thing um, is, and perhaps most important, is regardless of where you fall in the whole sentience conversation, we should prep right now as if our AI were going to be alive. Anybody know who this, uh, this cat is? Blaise Pascal, French mathematician and philosopher. He came up with this great gig called Pascal's Wager. You familiar with it? If you're, uh, if you're not, I'll just go through it real fast. It's basically, it's one of the most adorable proofs of God um, that exists. It's, it's, all right, you have two choices, you have to pick one. God exists or God doesn't exist. Now, economically, where should you put your chip? And where is it most expensive if you're wrong? So if I believe in God, it does, I guess it doesn't cost me that much, and if I'm right, hooray. I, go, I have a good afterlife, and if I'm wrong, uh, um, and if I'm wrong, no big deal. I'm still worm food. Um, whereas if you bet against believing in God, um, you don't have to go to, uh, you know, to, you know, I guess you don't have to go to church or synagogue or whatever you believe in, but um, if you're wrong, oof. Um, and so Pascal was like, you might as well just bet on God then, why not? Like if, um, and I, I, I think we have a corollary to that, which is, um, do I believe AI will ever be sentient? Yes or no? Then I should build and manage my AI ethically anyway. Does not matter. Everyone wins if we make AI ethical right now. Um, now, what do I mean by ethical? Again, uh, Alinka and I are, are practitioners. We don't... Um, we don't teach anybody about this. Where I will point you um, is, uh, the, uh, perhaps oddly, the University of Helsinki um, has an online course. If you go to your search engine of choice and type in University of Helsinki uh, um, AI Ethics, it'll take you to this really well done in English, uh, um, if you don't speak Finnish, and not even the Finns do, I don't think. It's a really complicated language. They, um, and it's, it's really well done, and it gives you a great overview of, of ethics. Um, um, don't sleep on the Finns. They are, were the first country to make uh, internet access a human right. So I dig, I, I want them thinking about this. Cold winters breed deep thinkers. Let them go. Like, go there, do that. Um, anyway, ethical AI is five things, and again, just like briefly, don't do bad stuff, no malfeasance. Be fair, that's no bias, right? Um, understand your impact as accountability. Be transparent is, well, transparency. And then uh, don't hurt humans is teach your AI human rights. In the odd and unlikely event that it becomes sentient, you will be thankful you did, and I will as well. Um, ethics are the most important non-story in AI right now. For every article you read about sentience, there should be 300 articles about AI, and that's not happening. No one's talking about it enough, and we should be. Um, and because even if you aren't compelled by the obvious benefits, it's the only meaningful preparation we can make for a sentient AI in advance. So let's do it. Let's ride this wave. Um, so let's uh, um, uh, jump into a summary real fast. Sentience is hard to define. We're doing it anyway, as Alinka uh, showed you, experience, magic, and agency. None of it matters because you're not going to need it. So be practical and focus on the things that you can do now. Um, because 
This is a, oh, sorry, you all were taking pictures of that, and then I just zooched right by it. <laughs> okay, all right, good. Um, uh, because it's a presentation on artificial intelligence, I'm required by law to put in a still photograph from Blade Runner. So this is ours. Um, uh, the, the original film, I, I love Blade Runner. I, I watch it, I don't watch it a lot, but I like to revisit it occasionally. It's a story about the future written in 1968, made into a movie in 1982, about a dystopian future in the year 2019. <laughs> yeah, well, um, and you, this is a deep cut, um, if you've ever seen the movie. This is the test that the protagonist gives to AIs to determine whether they're human or not. The reason why I love this movie is because it has a sentience test. Anybody know what the, remember what it's called? Voigtkampf. Oh, winner. <laughs> Voigtkampf test, God. South by Southwest is the best. Um, uh, and so, um, uh, so anyway, they test for this. And what I think was, uh, what, what I loved about this test was that in the movie, they, um, it has to, they have to evolve the test for a new technology. So whereas once they were able to find, now they had to ask more questions to find. And that I, I think is instructive. The other thing I think is instructive is um, uh, outside of the movie itself, Hampton Fancher is the, uh, one of the original screenwriters for the movie. And he has this great quote. One of the, um, one of the unanswered ambiguous questions in the movie um, is whether uh, one of the characters is a human or an AI, a replicant. And, and they don't answer it. Uh, they leave it at the end for you to decide. And even the director and the screenwriters like disagreed, which I thought was great. Um, and the, um, so uh, Hampton Fancher, when he was asked about this, he, uh, what he thought uh, was, whether it was, whether it was an AI or not, um, he had this great quote. He said, I like that we're asking the question, but I think, the but I think to answer it is nonsense. And I think we should be guided by that um, when we're talking about, about sentience. Let's keep asking these questions, these difficult questions. Let's keep testing ourselves. Uh, but rather than trying to answer it right now, let's instead focus on making the future a little less dystopian in the first place. Um, and with that, I will say thank you. And there's the link to our tool right there. <laughs> okay. um, we, we might have... We might have time for like one or two questions, maybe. Um, uh, you, sir? Hi, thank you so much for the talk. Um, I noticed that um, you started with the sort of um, the thesis that um, artificial intelligence is intelligent because of the letter I. Um, I also know that the first letter is A. Do you think artificial snow is snow? And also, you talked about practicality, right? And then you proceeded to take us through a tool that you said it's useless. So I'm curious, why did you do this panel? And if it's to talk about ethics, why didn't you talk about that? Why did you take us through this tool? The, so those are, that's about seven questions in that. So <laughs> first of all, you know, uh, talk about tragedy of the commons. The, um, the uh, listen, the, this is the topic of the day. And I think these are questions that we should answer. I, I think it is important to discuss uh, topic, uh, the topic of sentience, but I think it is equally important to then rewrite or, or readjust our, prior, our priorities on it. So I don't feel badly about it being kind of a head fake. Um, uh, also, and then to the, is artificial snow snow is a, I don't know, uh, do a panel next year on it. Like, you should totally do that. But, like, I, I think intelligence is something that is relatively easily constructed and measured, um, or easier, I should say. And so we've given that kind of pass to, to it. So I think those are all, like, really fascinating, interesting questions. Um, and I hope you don't think I'm kind of cheating with my answer, but that's, that's where we are on that. Um, so, so thank you for that. Uh, sir? Do you talk a little bit about ethics? And um, just to understand how you think, it's not about sentient, but how do you think the perception of AI gonna feel about deep fake and fake database to don't be biased because a lot of stuff are in between lines. So how do you think it's gonna be, it's not sentient, but how it's gonna be working AI not being biased because has a bad 
database or something or some the place they are looking for answers. Do you have any thoughts on that? Or? Um, so I think for that, I'm just thinking about the five from the University of Helsinki course and the kind of yeah. don't harm humans. I feel like that's super important. And it's important not just in, I guess, because we always talk about biased data or unbiased data, but also like the humans who labeled the data to go into your tool, were they harmed in the process that they have kind of fair working conditions and all of that. So I think that the kind of deep fake and all of that, it's a really interesting um, it's a really important and interesting discussion. And I think there's actually a film um, on, I think there's a film premiere tonight, I think about deep fake pornography and kind of all of that, which I think is super interesting. So yeah, those are so important and obviously like very harmful examples. Um, but yeah, it's kind of a whole other it is, discussion. Yeah. I would say. Um, and there's one more behind you. I think that's all we'll have time for. We'll try and hang out out there if you have more. Oh, we are, I'm afraid so. Sorry. Um, uh, but we'll, we'll hang outside for a little bit if you want to come grab us. Thank you.